good tomorrow, everybody. It's already October, which is crazy. It feels like the year is just kind of flying by. The medical school applicants are interviewing with us, so good luck to them. Interns are actually already a couple months in, and it is fall. And you know what that means? It's time for my favorite Halloween movie. I got five pieces of candy. I got a chocolate bar. I got a quarter. I got a rock. Uh, unfortunately, this time I'm alone. Sam is in a canyon somewhere in Arizona with his family. Uh, so instead, you get little old me. We got some spooky topics to cover this time around with all new voices to the podcast. Actually, everybody who is going to be on today, with the exception of me, has never been on the podcast yet. So I'll cut to the chase and you'll hear me chime in in between the segments. Otherwise, I'll see you on the other side of the episode. So first up, we have a nice little review of the basics of how to read an EKG with the illustrious Dr. Taylor Blackwell. We're going to talk about something very important, which is how to read an EKG, but like a basic broad overview of how you approach an EKG when someone puts it on your desk and says, hey, this is a person out there in the waiting room. Bye. Um, I want to know if we do it the same way because I learned it from, you know, that book, uh, what is it? The Dale book. Mm. It like, looks like a coloring book. Yeah. The guy turns out to be a terrible, terrible human. So <laughs> no one should buy that book. You should yeah. steal it off the internet and feel good about that. Show me how you go through, uh, EKGs. Obviously we're not like a visual format, but do your best. Sure. So we'll do our best visually here. Um, just introducing myself first. Uh, all I got was God of EKGs. So That's I'll give you a little bit God. more. That's right. Atheistic God. Give myself a little background here. Name is Dr. Uh, Taylor Blackwell. I'm one of the EMPGY3s. I have a special interest in EKGs kind of started when I was a fourth year med student, decided that I was no good at them and uh, decided that would no longer be the case and wouldn't fly. So kind of dove into it on my own and tried to teach myself what I could, took some cardiology rotations, some other things around, uh, kind of around that to get myself up to speed. But just laying the groundwork here. I'm not a cardiologist. I'm not an electrophysiologist. I'm just a, an EKG uh, nerd amongst our own kind of service here in, in emergency medicine. Uh, so my general approach. Step one, right patient, right story, right EKG. First, if I get an EKG dropped on my desk, say, hey, this is from the waiting room, and I try to dip out, if at all I am able to capture them. Uh, the first part in reading an EKG, as with reading anything else for me, is right patient, and write background information. So I would like to know who is the patient, make sure that I'm looking at the EKG of the person that I'm thinking about, um, same way you would do for a chest X-ray or any other imaging like a CT. So I have the right patient. I have the most recent EKG. This isn't one from two or three hours ago. Obviously, um, if you want something up to date, you gotta get it, get it redone. And then I'm gonna be getting a sense of the story because I'm looking at an EKG very differently if I'm looking at a syncope EKG or if I'm looking at nausea, vomiting, if I'm looking at chest pain. The beginning is the same, so I can start to look over while they give me the history. But by the time I get to the end of my read, I'm really looking for specific etiologies of that patient's presentation. And you'll see over and over again in EKG interpretations, one of the common pitfalls is identifying things that are not clinically relevant in that particular clinical picture or the opposite where you're missing things that are specifically relevant because you cannot look for every EKG pathology on every EKG. We don't have enough time. We get hundreds of EKGs over the course of a week of shifts and we just don't have the time um, to look for every EKG pathology. So general approach before we get into the specifics, maybe on later podcasts, if uh, if you guys will have me back, I'll, I'll go through more, some of the more specific thoughts that I go through. We will. All right. Step two, does it look normal? Appreciate it. Uh, so first step, 
Um, I got the right EKG. I got a sense of the story, so I know what to look for in a later case. But before I start looking at any specific etiologies, pathologies, very first broad look down at the EKG. Don't focus your eyes anywhere specific. Does this look normal or abnormal in your first two seconds? That sets the groundwork. But obviously, as an EM, we don't anchor. We're going to adjust based on the specifics that we see. But it helps me get a sense of, am I looking at what appears to me with my clinical expertise at this point in my career to be a normal EKG or an abnormal EKG? Helps kind of as I'm going forward. Step three, right. Um, First step after that, focus your eyes. Start to look at the rate. Um, Is it regular? If it is regular, you can use the trick of the boxes. You're counting out 300, 150, 175, 60, 50, 40, with each box going from one QRS complex to the other. So if it's regular, I'm scanning across the rhythm strip and finding a QRS that happens to fall either immediately on or right adjacent to one of our kind of vertically oriented lines and then looking for the next QRS before it or after it and seeing how close it falls to another line, getting a sense of average rate. If it is irregular, unfortunately, that trick does not work anymore. So if you're seeing irregularity, even sinus irregularity, you're going to have to count out all of the QRSs and multiply it to get the the full rate. Okay. Once you get a sense of rate, that's a rough estimate. You're just trying to determine, is this tachycardic? Is this bradycardic? Step four, rhythm. Second thing that that I look for is rhythm. Now that I've established the the rate, I'm going to look at the rhythm strip. Is there a regular P wave before each QRS complex? Am I looking at normal sinus? Technically, for normal sinus, you want your P waves to be up. I went to an AVF, which will tell you that this is normal sinus rhythm and that the focus of the P wave is coming from the appropriate SA node location. You can have a regularly occurring ectopic atrial focus, which looks like sinus rhythm, but the P waves are not up in the leads that we just talked about. And that is that is fine. That is normal. That can be a normal variant, but it's not technically sinus rhythm. And it's it, it can be clinically relevant because it tells you that this heart is not anatomically totally normal. Step five, axis. I have my rate. I have my rhythm. I'm looking at axis. Axis is a rough estimation here for me. I'm not looking specifically at the nuances of how many degrees off the normal axis is this. I'm looking at, is this apex of the heart pointed down and to the left? Um, Because if it is off axis in one way or the other, it's going to factor into some of the equations that I use later to determine whether there's other pathology going on. So I want the majority of the QRS to be upward deflecting in one and AVF. Those are my my big leads there. If both of those are up, then it's a normal access as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, if one is majority pointing down, that's going to be a rightward access. And if AVF is majority pointing down, then that's going to be orienting kind of the heart. It's harder with that without a visual access, but kind of orienting up towards the left shoulder, which is more of a leftward access. The nuances of that, you can we can go into in a further episode or we can look up on our own, but one in AVF, both majority positive, puts you in a normal access. Step six, intervals. We got our rate, we got our rhythm, we got our access. Next one is you're gonna be intervals. Follow your intervals from left to right. So looking at your, your PR axis first, you want it 120 milliseconds. If it's greater than 200 milliseconds, which is one big box, it's gonna be a first degree AV block. The opposite can also be true. The PR can be too short. And if the PR is too short, you start thinking about some of the Wolf-Parkinson-White or um, pre-excitations. There's another one that's, I think it's L. LLL or something like that is another one. It's a variation of, of Wolf Parkinson White that does not have the Delta wave. Uh, Levine Gown, something like that. Down down on Levine syndrome. I love it. You're looking for uh, a long or a short PR. Then you get into your QRS interval. What you're looking for is less than uh, 100 milliseconds. 
you're basically trying to decide is this a narrow complex or a wide complex rhythm. If you're getting a wide complex rhythm and you start thinking about other things, we'll talk about spoiler alert on future podcasts, but not today. But you're just trying to get a sense is this right? Is this is this narrow or is this wide complex? Um, don't be fooled. What you're looking for is a QRS complex from the start of the Q wave to the end of the R wave. You can see delta waves on the Q side, and you can kind of see slurring when you see ST segment changes on the R side. So you're really trying to see where that upward slope of the R wave and the downward slope of the S wave really change slope as as your point there. So don't be don't be concerned about widening. Sometimes it's narrow complex, but you have a delta wave that makes it look wide. Uh, next segment you're looking for is the ST segment. The ST segment itself is from the end of the S wave to the end of the T wave, and it can be prolonged a variety of ways. Most commonly, actually, a prolongation of the uh, ST segment is secondary to a prolongation of the T wave itself. It's actually rare to see a prolongation of the, the ST segment purely from the ST segment. We see this in um, electrolyte disturbances almost exclusively and hypothermia. So hypothermia and uh, hypocalcemia will prolong your ST segment specifically, whereas almost all other pathologies that we think of as a prolongation of the ST segment is actually technically a prolongation of the T segment. We just have a, a sloping of the uh, leftward side of the, the T wave. You want your like 420s, 430s for women is normal, 440s, 450s is normal for men for your QT. Um, but honestly, from an EM men's mindset, if it's less than 500, I'm not worried. The chances of it torsades clinically with less than 500 for males or females is very low. So 500 is kind of my cutoff for both before I start worrying about QT prolonging drugs. One trick for QT segment, rather than measuring it out, because technically what you want to do is a QTC or corrected QTC. And what you're correcting for is the rate. So the faster the rate, the more the QRs kind of poke together and that distorts the, the computer estimation of your QT segment. And so there's a correction factor where you're dividing by the uh, square root of the preceding RR interval. All of that is math that you don't need to know. If you need to calculate it, go to MD Calc. The rough and dirty trick that I use far more commonly on shift is looking at is, is the end of the QT segment more than halfway between the RRs that it is falling in between. So if that peak of your R wave on the left of it and the peak of the R wave on the right of it, if you draw a central line between those at an equidistant point and that T wave finishes to the left of it, then you're not worried about QT prolongation. If it's over half of the distance before the next R wave, you start thinking about QT prolongation. Step seven, ischemia. Going forward, now we've done our rate, our rhythm, our access, our intervals. Then we start looking at signs of ischemia. I don't care what the patient's there for, look for signs of ischemia. The one thing we cannot miss is ischemia. That's what we do. That's our bread and butter. That's training. If the patient comes in dizzy, if the patient comes in with nausea, vomiting, if the patient comes in with palpitations, there is no chief complaint for which an EKG is reasonable that ischemia is not on your differential. So always look for it. Signs of ischemia, obviously ST changes are the big ones we all learn. ST elevation, but don't get fooled by ST depression. That is also an early sign of ischemia, particularly in the anteroceptal leads where it's a sign of posterior STEMI. But any ST segment elevation or depression is something to follow. Other signs of ischemia, T wave changes in both directions, T wave flattening, T wave inversion are big signs of ischemia that you'd want to follow up on, as well as hyperacute T waves, meaning the T wave itself either changes in morphology wider or taller, usually both, but not necessarily so. The key that we look for or that I look for clinically is for a hyperacute T wave to be justifiably hyperacute in my mind. I want to be able to place the entirety of the preceding QRS complex under, easily under 
the T wave without any kind of wiggling out below, above, or side to side. And so if you've got big QRS complexes, you're allowed a bigger T wave. Um, and that's just because the voltage, that heart is, is either beating closer to the chest or beating with more force. And so you just have a higher voltage EKG overall. Whereas you get someone who's hypothyroid or has a little bit of an effusion and those voltages are smaller, you gotta be really sensitive to those T waves because they can be physically small, but compared to the QRS, still hyperacute. Obviously, all of these are in the setting of previous EKGs because people can have chronic ischemia, they can have LV aneurysms from previous MIs, they can have kind of like low level myocardial scarring that can look at kind of like ischemia, but will be chronic. So if any of these are new changes, that's obviously much more concerning. Step eight, specific signs. Now we got our rate, we got our rhythm, we got our access, we got our intervals, we've got our signs of ischemia. The last thing, whenever you look at any test, the last thing is specific to the chief complaint. So we've done all of those things. And now we remember it's been ages. So we try to remember what were they here for? Were they here for syncope? Were they here for chest pain? Were they here for shortness of breath? Is it nausea, vomiting? Are we worried about an electrolyte abnormality? Then you start looking at, at kind of specifics. And we won't go into all the specifics because there's many, many reasons to get an EKG, but don't be fooled. Don't start looking for hyperkalemic changes as your first sign on somebody who's nausea and vomiting and miss that big anterior STEMI. Parting wisdom. First step in analyzing an EKG, after you've gotten a sense of the story and you've identified that it's the correct patient, the very first step I always want you to do, don't cheat out of this. Trust me, it will, it will be worth it in the long term and you, you will not miss things that other providers will miss, is turn the top of that EKG backwards. Turn it down. Don't cheat. Don't look at the read. Don't look at the intervals. Turn it down. Make that interpretation first on your own, because I promise you a little bit of practice. You will be better than any EKG that's out there today. OK, and I have seen many, many, many things missed by a computer. And the worst thing we can do is anchor on a normal EKG reading and then start our process with a thought process that this is normal. You start to write off those subtle ST changes. You start to write off those T wave inversions and you're going to miss things. Now, if you turn up that EKG after to test yourself and there's a disagreement, then you look back, oh, maybe you were a little bit aggressive with that call. That's fine, but turn that down first so that you're testing yourself against yourself and then confirming with the computer and trust yourself when you see something that you think the computer has missed because statistically, when they look into these for studies, people who have experience with EKGs, it's more likely the computer is wrong. And the worst thing you can do is have this patient have a missed MI because you trusted a machine over your own training. Got some good tips there, regardless of whether you're new or old at reading EKGs. And up next, we have some creepy crawlies with the big jabroni himself, Ian Hunter. Lyme disease part two. Why were you so interested in doing Lyme? So I was always because me and myself, we have a, have a personal experience with, uh, with Lyme. The summer was 2006. An easier time. Uh, second Bush administration. I mean, whew, man, those were some wild times. Anywho, summer 2006, I was uh, playing out a bunch with my friends out in this like bag wooded area. We had just recently acquired airsoft guns, so we were shooting each other with those a lot. Yeah, that was uh, that was entertaining. Where is this? Where where are we? I, I can't tell you. They would give it away. Okay. Double jeopardy. I don't know. No, uh, this was in uh, Southern Connecticut. So, uh, Southern Connecticut. 
Um, but anywho, so uh, I was spending a lot of time out there, but the things don't actually start picking up until I'm actually in Montana. So my, my folks had a, a spot out there, so we would go in the summer for a couple weeks at a time. First week I'm out there, everything's fine. You know, maybe feeling a little, you know, a little under the weather, but like otherwise, totally just kind of doing our thing, hiking, you know, d- you know, doing doing the outdoor life. But I know the first week comes along and I start, you know, feeling sick, right? It's more like these, uh, almost like flu, right? Middle of summer, but I feel like I'm coming out with the flu. Achy, sore, you know, you know, going hot and cold. And one of the most distinguishing features of the, the kind of couple of days that started going on was I could not go to sleep. I would be exhausted, but I would get in bed. I would be drenched in sweat. I would like, take the covers off and then be too cold for that. And then put the covers on and then the fever starts kicking in. The, I could never find a room that was dark enough to like really feel like I was trying to sleep. And so this went on for like four or five days and it got to the point where we actually went camping and I literally couldn't get up from the fireside uh, and ended up trying to basically staying in the tent all day. Um, just because so flipping tired. And finally, by the end, uh, it was like two days before we're leaving and like things just aren't getting better. It's like five days of this and fevering the entire time. Uh, still responding with Tylenol, but my parents are like, I don't know what's going on here. Finally, I developed this big old rash on my forearm uh, that we're like, okay, clearly something is not right. And so we went to this uh, urgent care center out in Red Lodge, Montana. And lo and behold, this uh, ER doc was was right on money. He was like, you know, this is weird, but I think you have Lyme. And sure enough, that's what ended up happening. About uh, a couple hours after I saw him, ended up blowing up in all these uh, erythema migraines rashes. Rashes, plural? Rashes, plural. Um, I literally, my biggest and most memorable one was, again, like right in my forearm, about yay big, head to toe covered with rashes. And not like, you know, small little punctual ones. These are like large, like beefy, like, you know, purplish red rashes that I had, and, and then ended up having to fly home on. Fortunately, it was pre-COVID time. So, so, you know, only looked mildly like a leper, but like, I still, like, it was like, literally had to like do like, like full on like ankles to wrist type coverings. But fortunately he started me on doxies at that visit uh, two days before flying. So I was actually feeling better. And by the time... I made my own visit with my pediatrician back home, ended up kind of prolonging the course of doxy, but and I'm doing just fine. I'm telling you, man, that first, that week of being sick, my God, it's some of the worst feeling that I've ever had. Like it's, it's, you feel like absolute trash. So what you're saying is that ER doc knows it. And, uh, that's probably the person that, uh, Saved your life, maybe? I don't know. I mean, at least my heart or, or you know, you know my, your heart and your brain. Uh, my brain, at least. Yeah. I remember him talking about it and being like, ah, this is, you know, sound very much like it. So, yeah, it goes to show, man. Middle of nowhere, Montana, and still end up getting East Coast diseases thrown at you. Diagnostics. That was an incredible story. My question is, did they do any diagnoses or like any, like, did, I mean, obviously he knew, right? You had the target rash, so he probably didn't need to do anything. Probably didn't need to get any blood or anything. Did they? So he did end up sending off uh, some tests, some blood tests at the time. Typically, though, if you have enough of a story, you know, it's enough to, to make your diagnosis. Lyme, Lyme is, for the most part, considered a clinical diagnosis. Where things get hairy is in this, you know, where you have enough of a story, but maybe don't have the erythema migraines. Um, that's when, you know, your, diagno- your diagnostic testing comes into play. The real catch is, though, that 
early on in your disease course, your sensitivity is not very high, right? So you're negative. You may end up having those extreme negatives early in the disease when you, it may actually end up being false. Typically though, what we'll do is you'll kind of do like a, a both a ELISA type, you know, kind of blot type test, screen out test, followed by a more specific antibody based based test, which I think was where you get some of these false, these false negatives, um, because your body basically needs to develop an immune response during this window period. You may not actually screen uh, reflectively of your disease status. Specificity though, however, on these tests are, are pretty darn high. But again, I think it comes down to if you got the migraines and you got enough of the story or some, you know, having someone come from an endemic area, it, it, it's almost yeah, slam dunk at that point. If you got the migraines. Yeah, the migraines. <laughs> migraines. The only other thing I was going to add is that if you have neurological manifestations or like monoarticular arthritis, in that case, you've got a target basically. True, true. I was very fortunate that I did not have to get tippity tap tapped either in my knees or in my spine. The joint stuff, I think you'll be more likely to do than you're already down the path of neuro. But I guess neuro, you're going to end up ruling out a bunch of other stuff as well. Because once you develop that late stage kind of neurologic findings, you know, again, you have other worries you got to consider as well. Other scary central nervous meningitis and whatnot. Treatment. All right. So that's how you diagnose. All right. Let's talk about how you treat things. My favorite antibiotic is, is a classic, the old doxy, the old doxy. Now, what's interesting is the duration is still, at least in my experience, was still some up in the air. Like the early localized infection, you can get away with like a two to four week course of, you know, 100 uh, BID of, of doxy. If you're in that kind of early disseminated, though, um, I mean, I took I took a course for six to eight weeks. You know, remember these are spirochetes, right? They're they're getting intracellular, they're hiding out, their you know their ability to to evade our immune system, and also the antibiotic therapies tends to be problematic. So I feel like these uh, these tend to end up requiring longer term antibiosis. There's always the classic, you know, oh, but I'm you know allergic to doxy, so amoxicillin, subtraxone, totally totally appropriate options, and definitely subtraxone as you're getting more concerned about neurologic dissemination. So if you got someone who's coming in later disease course, just go for some ceftriaxone while you're you know doing your workup. In the ED, it seems like we're either going to admit you for really bad Lyme or we're going to discharge you for slime disease and doxycycline and ID follow-up. And I think an appropriate course, 10 to 14 days, is probably a good starting point for, for these early, either localized or early disseminated findings. And then this is something I wanted to cover a little while back. So prophylaxis, let's say you have a, you know, you have a tick bite, right? Somebody comes in in the ED and they're like, I got bitten by a tick. Then what? If people are coming in having been exposed to a tick, then it's appropriate in certain circumstances to give some prophylaxis. And so generally it's when you have, you know, been like a three day period, right, of, of finding a tick that's been engorged, right? You're not talking about these little flat little buggers that are just, you know, been kind of crawling on you or even early in the uh, in the bite cycle. These are ones that basically have already been eating at you, right? These are the ones that have, you know, when you squish it, you basically spur blood everywhere. Those are the ones that are have the high, I know that's really you know, you tend to have higher risk for transmittal, right? The longer they've been, been attacked. Right? You know, again, within that three-day period, it's appropriate to put them on doxy. But when we say put them on, we're talking about a single dose here. We're just talking about giving them 200 off the bat and send them on their way. CDC has a nice little uh, PDF that I'll link in the show notes that you can go to if somebody comes in. And it's like, are they in the right geography? Was it in the last three days, like you said, 72 hours? Does the, did the tick look big and gorged? Um, was it the right kind of tick? which I'm not, who knows what, do you know what an ICSID's tick actually looks like? 
Well, I mean, are we talking about which exodus are we talking about? Um, don't do this to me. I know I'm not. <laughs> nah, man. I mean, listen to me. It takes a tick. You know, if if it's uh, small and you know a little scampery, nah, no. Nah. Quick pitch though. Make sure you know when you're taking these off. Don't be pinching. Get your nice little scraper. You know, something like a tweezer. Then just kind of try to help scrape it off. Don't try to be pick, plucking those guys out. You'll lose the head. Yep, that's right. And now we're uh, going to our ad segment. We are sponsored by REI who uh, actually, they sell, actually, there was some really nice uh, tick removers um, at the cash registers. They're only a couple of dollars. I remember yes. I got one. I've never used it. But I have one for when I find one. What's funny is the CDC thing here says, was the tick an Exodus tick? Yes, possibly tick unavailable. And then the only way you can get away with it not being an Exodus tick is if you definitely know it's not an Exodus tick. <laughs> So you've got to be like an entomologist or like a tick specialist or something. Otherwise, I don't think anybody is going to know. Uh, and then the last step is like, is, is Doxy safe for the patient? And then we don't need to cover that here. And when do you admit these people? If you're seeing cardiac findings, you're seeing neurologic findings, you're seeing if you're, you know, in, in any way having, you know, just poor vital signs, people haven't been eating well, dehydration, then, you know, I'm, then I'm leaning toward keeping them minimum for OBS or I think the only thing that uh, UpToDate really wanted to drive home is that if they have any cardiac findings, then this person be it should definitely be admitted and put on telly. That's the only experience I have with uh, Lyme disease, actually. is Ooh, I was, Mine was just, um, I got signed up for a patient who was 28 years old or you know very young and then had complete heart block, hmm. which we never see. And yeah. so... Uh, a very smart uh, inpatient doctor was like, let's get a Lyme serology. And it was positive. The next day when I came in for my pediatric shift on that uh, in the ED, I like looked back and was like, look at that. That Lyme was positive. He has a complete heart block. He got treated with Doxy. I don't know if it got better or not, but I was, I was like, well, there you go. All right. So let's talk about special populations really quick. So pregnancy and pregnancy, we are told maybe we should not use some doxy. Correct. You just have safer options for those who are with child. These are your moxicillin and cefiroxine, both of which are safe. And and then I remember, do you remember the Jerish, Jerish Herxheimer reaction? Am I saying yeah, that, that right? With like, is that with like syphilis though? Syphilis is what I remember it for, but syphilis yeah. is also a spirochete. Jerish Hexheimer, right, is when you have, uh, when you start antibiotic therapy and you have this like mass killing of the spirochetes that you end up causing a, a kind of a secondary immune reaction. So, you know, your, your medicine is making them sicker, doctor. Way to go. What do we do? What do I do? You do what every famous uh, musician does. Can't stop, won't stop. You know, you just, you just keep going. Give a little mindsets. Tell them to tough it out. I mean, show empathy and tell them that this is an Expected reaction. I feel like it's actually probably a good thing to tell people before you discharge them. If you're about to like give them, you know, if they have like early disseminated Lyme and it's just cutaneous reactions, you're going to like send them home with Doxy. But you should probably tell them that they might feel like crap the next day or the next couple of days. And then they should come back and they're like return precautions, but like letting them know that that's going to happen. Otherwise, they're going to show up and be like, hey, God, you made me worse. It's true. But you did, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, but like telling people like after you discharge somebody with flagell or mitronidazole, and then not telling them about the alcohol yeah, 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 sulfur yeah. reaction, they're like, "I got so much sicker," and it's like, "Well, uh, maybe you want to cut that anyway." Um, it is what we consider in medicine to be a d move in bird culture. This is considered a d move. That's right. <laughs> so if there's co-infection, um, there's a chance that your black-legged deer tick is going to give you something else too. But honestly, it almost all can be treated with doxy. And that's the beautiful thing about doxy, right? It is for for some of the for a lot of these tick-based infections. 
Just throw them on Doxy. All right. Summary. Let's quickly summarize what we talked about here. Management, that's going to change depending on how severe it is. And it sounds like it just, it's Doxy, number one. A lot of Doxy. A lot of Doxy. And then it just changes the amount of time that you're going to be on Doxy depending on how severe of a disease you have. Right. And yeah. that switches, of course, to ceftriaxone when you're inpatient and you've got some pretty severe disease. Anything cardiac. Some other second or third gen cephalosporins, but yeah, that's that's where you want to be going. Sounds good. And then when are we admitting these people? And whenever you have any of these cardiac or neurologic findings. Cool. And then we'll consult. I mean, I don't know if we'll consult ID, but they will consult ID upstairs. Anyway, oh. thanks, buddy. Love it. Yeah, dude, no worries. Thank you this for having was, me. This was good. It also was short, too, so it'll be really, really good. I'll keep it tight, man. Moving on from the migraines, we now have some more creepy crawlies, this time with our resident who's 100% going to go into a tox fellowship, and that's Kat Markin. Dr. Catherine Markin. Nice to be here. I'm Kat. I'm one of the second year emergency medicine residents at GW, and like Armand introduced, I'm probably going to tox TBD, though. You're going to go to talk. You you went to a consult for a TCA overdose recently. Yes, it was thrilling. It was everything I wanted more. So okay, exactly. <laughs> All right. We got to talk about some cool things. So it's Halloween and we have some scary things that we want to talk about. And this is like the month to talk about like talks. Now, originally I was like, let's talk about like witches, potions and stuff, which we'll get to. But today I wanted to actually talk about spider bites if you wanted to. It was my dream when I was in middle school and I watched Toby Maguire get bit by a spider to also get bit by a spider. Has and it happened have, to you? you know, have you gotten your spidey powers since being in residency? No. We're going to talk about three specific spiders, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me just preface this by saying I actually really strongly dislike spiders. So researching this was very hard for me with some of the pictures. I wouldn't say I hate spiders. So I know they're really good for like our ecosystem and whatever, but I really don't like them. They really scare me. I don't like things that scurry and they're kind of like they do that a lot. So not my favorite thing to look at, but they're super interesting. And I think there's, you know, knowledge and power, right? With great power comes great responsibility. You know which ones are going to hurt you. That's kind of like a good thing, too. So the ones that we're pretty much going to talk about today are black widows, which I think everybody's heard about before. And then brown recluse spiders, as well as tarantulas, which I feel like everyone has seen at least at some point in their life, whether in person or at least on a computer screen. To preface all of this, have you ever seen somebody come into the ED, either the adult or peas, and been like, I was bitten by this spider specifically? I have not. It's usually been like very vague. Like, I think I was bitten. It's somebody who always comes in and they're like, I think I was bitten by something or I have a rash and it really hurts and it's itchy right here in this one spot. So it's really hard to tell what kind of bites these are. So we're going to probably focus more on like the signs and symptoms and like when you should start thinking like, oh, maybe this is one of the uh, brown recluse or black widow. Background on geography. So black widows, they're found throughout North America, but not in Alaska, apparently, mainly in the southern United States. And they are found in the DMV. So something of note for us, they tend to live in like really temperate and tropical latitudes. Notably, they take shelter in like really dark, quiet, secluded areas like walls, crevices, outhouses, barns, stables and like trash cans. The females are the ones that we really want to worry about. They're the shiny jet black ones. They're kind of large, eight to 10 millimeters. And they have this like rounded abdomen and the characteristic red hourglass mark on the surface. 
it's the female one that's larger and has like the longer fangs that can penetrate human skin, which makes her more venomous and toxic than the smaller male spider. They usually only bite when they're served though. That's something to take note of. They're actually pretty shy. What I learned about them. I'm just realizing again, why they're called black widows. Yeah. Because they kill their mates. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. A really fitting name. Let's talk about Luxo. Luxosceles reclusa. Right. Brown recluse. Yeah. AKA Luxosceles reclusa. They're found mainly in the Southern, Central, and Midwest United States. They, on the other hand, are hunter spiders. They do live in dark, quiet areas, and they usually only attack when provoked, but they do hunt, which is kind of slightly different from the Black Widow. They're characteristically violin-shaped. They have six eyes and legs that are notably five times longer than their body. They're very resilient spiders. They can survive up to six months without any food or water and can tolerate pretty extremes in temperature. So like 46 degrees Fahrenheit to 109. But it kind of explains why they can live in these like kind of central or southern areas of the United States. And also like the Black Widow, the female is more dangerous than the male. So are they here? Are they around us? Not really. No, there's like some that like have been brought over when somebody like travels with them or something and they're like on baggage, but they don't usually live here. Tarantulas. So I feel like these might be like the one that I feel like everybody knows about. They're the largest and hairiest spiders, which I didn't know. They're really popular as pets um, found throughout the United States and tropical and subtropical areas. The female tarantula can live over like 15 years, 15 to 20 years, which seems like a really long time. I don't know. It's like how long my dog would live. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like very excessive, but good for them. They have really bad eyesight and they usually detect their victims by touch and vibrations. And their main form of defense is in their bite or with their really long hairs that we'll talk about in a little bit. Did you see my notes? Yeah, I looked it up. I don't really know what Animal Crossing is. (laughs) You don't know what Animal Crossing is? No. (laughs) Like during all of the COVID shutdown when everybody was playing this game with little cute animals? No. Okay. All right. Well, we have to educate you. There's a game with little cute animals that you just like, you build up a little island. And one of the ways you make money is by selling insects that you catch. And one of the insects that you have to catch is a tarantula. For my very limited research, they would prefer, they're shy as well. They don't want to come and like attack you. It's all like self-defense that they do. In the game though, if they see you, they will chase you. Anyway, let's talk about their epidemiology. (laughs) Well, I don't think that they would chase you in real life, but I guess of note in Animal Crossing, make note that they will chase you. Epidemiology. Moral of the story here is like, don't bother them. Like like you said, um, they usually will only come at you if they feel like they're being attacked. I know that they're like for the Black Widows, there were... 40,000 bites that were reported to the American Association of Poison Control Centers, but there were no deaths. The brown recluse, they usually go out at night. They're not aggressive, but will bite you if they feel like they're being attacked. And then for most spiders in general, they usually like come out and will kind of like be an issue from spring to autumn. But like in the winter, they usually go and hide. Pathophysiology. Okay. So the mechanism of action for black widows, I think is really cool. It's neurotoxic and it's mainly alpha latrotoxin. The way that this works is it binds presynaptic neurons, causes presynaptic discharge of neurotransmitters, mainly catecholamines and acetylcholine, but also dopamine and glutamate, and ultimately results in pain, muscle rigidity, vomiting, and sweating. And then like a fun fact that I saw was that the venom of the black widow spider is more potent on a volume per volume basis than that of the pit viper. So like, yeah. So it's, it's bad. 
but they only do like small volumes every time they bite you. So it's like not that it's not as severe as something that would be like a pit viper, which might do a larger volume. They also have as part of their venom, some proteases as well mm-hmm. that'll like break down, like have a little bit of like localized, like, um, dysphenocrosis, but it's mm-hmm. mostly that neurotoxin that we're, we're primarily talking about brown recluse. The mechanism of action for this spider is that its venom is cytotoxic. It basically has sphingomyelinase D, which causes necrosis and hemolysis, and then hyaluronidase, which facilitates venom penetration into tissues. Tarantula. All right. So the mechanism of action for tarantulas, the venom has a mix of hyaluronidase, kind of like the brown recluse as well, and nucleotides, polyamines, basically causing local tissue injury. The hyaluronidase is a spreading factor, allows more rapid entrance of the venom by destruction of connective tissue and intracellular matrix, ultimately causes um, skeletal muscle necrosis in mice, but as we'll talk about in humans, doesn't seem to be doing the same thing. There's also their hairs, which contain chitin, lipoproteins, and mucopolysaccharides, which cause local irritation, which we'll also discuss shortly. Have you seen a picture of a tarantula hair on a microscope? No, I haven't. Wait, have you watched Spider-Man with uh, Tobey Maguire? Yeah. You know that scene when he's like finally first able to like start climbing the walls and you see the hair on his fingers? Yeah. Um, oh, that yeah. is apparently sort of what it looks like. It's like super, super highly barbed and like just very spiny. So the fact that when these hairs get on somebody and it, I mean, it makes total sense that this is causing so much irritation. Exactly. Ugh. Presentation. All right, so let's get to the meat and potatoes of the entire talk, which is really just signs and symptoms because no one's going to come in and be like, I was bit by a black widow. Yeah, exactly. So for black widows, most of the time people report that they feel like a pinprick sensation when they're bit. And there might be some local skin changes. They may have like a target lesion. And then from there, the target lesion can spread contiguously as in form of like the venom will spread. That presents as lactrodectism is what it's called. It's widespread muscle spasms and pain. The cramping can usually start at the site like 15 minutes to an hour after the bite occurs, and then it will progress to muscle rigidity in the large skeletal muscles, mainly being the chest, abdomen, and the face. The muscle pain can kind of go away in a few hours, but can come and go for like several days, which is like very not pleasant. That sounds like horrible, actually, that it could just come and go for a long time. And then in terms of like the spasming of the belly area, severe abdominal wall spasms can mimic acute abdomen. So something to kind of take a note of with these patients when they come into the ED and we're like, what's going on? Do we need to get surgery involved? There's also diffuse sweating, diaphoresis, so tachycardia, flushing, hypertension, nausea, and vomiting. They can present with what's called paver mortis, which is like they described as like a fear of death. I think it's similar to something that would happen like maybe with adenosine when like you just feel like you're going to die. There's also priapism and compartment syndrome. It's thought that the venom affects the blood vessels and it causes engorgement and obstruction of the venous outflow. And then this was something that I had to like really look up how to pronounce. Faces latrodectismica, something like that. Faces latrodectismica. Um, it's basically like sweating, contorted or grimaced faces, inflammation of the eyelids, conjunctivitis, runny nose, inflammation of the lips, and then lockjaw, as well as periorbital edema. But basically, kind of like the big things, we're ER docs, right? We want to know what the life-threatening issues are with the black widow spites. So it's basically the severe hypertension, any respiratory distress, 
cardiomyopathy or myocarditis, cardiovascular failure, seizure, or gangrene. And these are the ones that we really need to take note of when we talk about the treatment. Brown recluse. So these ones, they um, manifest usually as like, they'll have like a painless bite. Sometimes people don't even realize they were bitten, which I think is like really terrifying, actually, that you have no idea that you were bitten. All of a sudden you get this like gross thing on like your arm or your leg. Um, there's necrotic arachnidism, which is a dermal injury characterized by local symptoms with increasing ulceration. So this will progress over like two weeks or so. And there's a very general timeline that I'm just going to talk about briefly. So days one to three, there's a central hemorrhagic ulceration surrounded by ischemia and outer erythema. So this is what they would call the red, white, and blue lesion. Days three to four, it just gets like progressively worse necrosis. Five to seven, there's an eschar formation. Days seven to 14, the eschar will fall off and the wound will heal by secondary intention. However, like the really scary thing about brown recluse spiders is luxosalism, which is basically a rare systemic reaction that can occur 24 to 72 hours after the initial bite, presents as fevers, chills, weakness, nausea, vomiting, joint pain but can also progress to hemolysis, coagulopathy, rhabdo, renal failure, DIC, and death. And so basically there was a presentation like earlier in October for the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology. It happened in Montreal, like earlier in October this month. And there was a abstract presentation they talked about there. It was a West Texas poison control center. And it was basically talking about a brown recluse spider that caused orbital compartment syndrome. Just briefly going over it. Yeah, it was horrible. It was a 44-year-old guy. He had no past medical history. He came in with 24 hours after being bitten by a brown recluse spider just over the right eyebrow. Eight hours later, he had facial pain, swelling, vision loss that had progressively worsened. When he came to the ED, he had facial ecchymosis, angioedema. There was um, proptosis of his eye, severe periorbital edema. He rapidly decompensated um, during intubation. It was noted that he had severe edema of the neck, likely from this bite. He had upper GI bleeding from DIC. He underwent a lateral canthotomy for his ocular compartment syndrome. He ultimately had multi-organ failure, rhabdo, DIC, went to the ICU and died 37 hours after his bite. Oh my yeah. God. It's crazy. So... These spiders are no joke. Sometimes they can be really, really serious and very difficult to kind of like control and manage. You know, they might go to the ICU. So this is like a worst case scenario kind of picture. This is a 44 year old dude with no history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Okay. So that is a brown recluse. And then in terms of the tarantula, the bites that they, um, the tarantula will have are basically just similar to a bee sting. Um, They kind of just like, hurt and that's pretty much it their severe animations are really really rare the more common thing that we need to kind of like make note of are the hairs that they um when they kind of like get on your skin they'll call us a local histamine reaction with lots of inflammation and itching and irritation in general itching can go on for several weeks commonly involving just general areas on the skin especially like hands or feet where like you're kind of just like going to be touching things the respiratory tract as well as the eyes which we will also go into a little bit more detail in a little bit do you know how um how these hairs get on you you don't actually hold the spider at all or be too close to the spider i think what it is is they will stand on their hind legs sometimes and then sometimes they like will either rub their abdomens or their abdomens will like shake and flick flick hairs out at people. It's pretty cool. Management. So a little bit about black widows. 
there's not really anything that we can do to like specifically confirm that they were bitten by a black widow in terms of any testing or anything. So basically it's just going to be treatment. So obviously doing our ABCDs, updating the tetanus if they need it, but antibiotics are not recommended. In terms of the pain slash muscle spasms that can come with these spider bites, it's mainly supportive. So like cold packs, NSAIDs, you can do benzos if they're having like significant anxiety and it can also help with the spasms and opioid medications for pain. They usually recover in like 24 to 48 hours. Um, but it's something that we would take note of is that we would want to tell them that like you can get some of these, this pain can come and go for the next couple of days um, and to kind of expect that. The, so basically the big picture for this is that the morbidity with black widows is very high with the pain and cramping but the mortality is low. So that's something just to take note of for these spiders. If though they come in with a very severe envenomation, kind of what we talked about before, there is an anti-venom. It's equine IgG anti-serum. It's rapidly curative and very effective, but there's a very high risk for serum sickness and anaphylaxis, particularly in those who have a history of allergy or like asthma and then particularly in terms of allergy, like horse allergy. So there have been fatal cases of anaphylaxis seen with this anti-venom, which like you really have to weigh, I think, yeah. like how well you're going to be able to manage this patient with and without the anti-venom because like there's, it's significant, I think, yeah. the risk that you're taking on with this. Basically, like the way you do it, it's one to two vials diluted in 50 to 100 mils of D5W or normal saline infused over one hour, and then you better have your anaphylaxis treatments at the ready. Yeah. And these so. people are getting admitted, I'm assuming. If you're giving someone anti-venom. Yes. Yes, yeah. definitely they'd be admitted. But then again, so if they don't like have really serious anything, they can be sent home with like good PCP follow-up and making note that like their symptoms will come and go likely for the next couple of days or so. What about the brown recluse? So in terms of the diagnostics for this, again, like most people are going to come in saying that they didn't even feel anything, which I think is part of the scary part of this. Um, there are like some research-based diagnostic things that they've talked about. It's like passive hemagglutination inhibition testing, ELISA biopsy tissue, but the tests aren't readily available. They're usually for research purposes. So they basically don't mean anything to us. They're not going to change our clinical management. Um, for luxosalism, you basically... Like because it can be so severe and so intense, you want to get a lot of labs. You just really want to make like a thorough assessment of what could potentially be going on in these patients. So that would include like a CBC, BMP, definitely LFTs, your DIC labs, LDH, haptoglobin. You can get a peripheral smear. And then something that was also talked about by toxicologists that I was kind of speaking to earlier about this was basically there's something called the not recluse mnemonic which can be used to help rule out a brown recluse bite. So it's kind of like used in the diagnostic way, but it's not a lab that we can do. It's not recluse. So N means numerous. Most recluse bites are singular wounds when the spider is like crushed at a surface or where it bites you. If there are multiple lesions, not likely a recluse spider, potentially something else like bacterial infections, shingles, or some other like fleas or mites or bed bugs, poison ivy, something like that. O stands for occurrence. Many of the bites occur when a sleeping person rolls over onto a spider in bed or when dressing in the morning, putting on shoes or clothes, or when you're like disturbing something in your house, like in your attic or garage or basement. 
They don't tend to live on green vegetation. So skin lesions that show up after gardening might be something else. So like a fungal infection, like sporotrichosis, or um, like just basically any other kind of infection from that sort. The T and not stands for timing. Like we said earlier, most recluse bites occur from April to September in the Northern Hemisphere. Even like in the wintertime, when you have your heat on, the recluses typically disappear. The skin lesions um, during October to March are like the downtime and are not very likely to be recluse bites, except like if you're kind of like out and about in your attic and you're like moving around stuff, but typically like not in the winter. R stands for red center. Except for the mild envenomations, recluse bites are not red in the center of the lesion. The venom destroys the capillary network at the bite site. So the red blood cells can't get to that area. The more dynamic bites will be white, blue, or purple. But if there's a red center, the differential diagnosis should be something else like cellulitis. E stands for elevated. Recluse bites are flat or slightly sunken inward. If a lesion is raised more than one centimeter above the normal skin surface, the recluse bite is very unlikely to include um, other differentials. C stands for chronic. Most are healed by the third month in not very severe cases. Um, if they last any longer than that, probably not a recluse bite. Large. Most um, recluse bites do not become larger than 10 centimeters or two and a half inches. U stands for ulcerates too early. That's a little bit of a stretch, but it's fine. <laughs> recluse envenomations don't usually ulcerate until day seven to day 14, which we talked about a little bit earlier. S stands for swelling. Recluse bites do not involve much swelling below the neck or above the ankles, except in like that kind of like particular one that I mentioned earlier where it was a bite at the eyebrow and then it was like, so that was like a little bit different. But so the bites above the neck can involve significant swelling, which can cause breathing, compromised breathing passage, what I talked about in that case. If there's major swelling below the neck to the ankles, that might be another infection. E stands for exudative. So this is the last point. This would be the most important sign. In indicating that it's not a recluse bite in the fact that it's exudative. Recluse bites may form a small fluid-filled blister at the bite site soon after the bite, but most times the recluse bites are usually dry. If the skin lesion has pus or blood or serum, it's probably something other than like a spider bite. So basically, summary is not recluse mnemonic. It's something that toxicologists use when they're trying to figure out if it potentially is a recluse bite or not. So the treatment for brown recluse spiders, supportive, analgesia, local wound care, like cool compresses and pain management. You want to update their tetanus. If it's a really severe wound, you might have to get your surgery friends on board, but this should happen like down the road. If you do it too early, it could cause like more tissue injury. So it'd be like something that you would just want to consider potentially when they're admitted, if that's the route you're trying to go down. Again, holding off on antibiotics unless there's an obvious secondary wound infection. And so for these patients, if there's like a very local bite without any signs of systemic toxicity, they will need close outpatient follow-up and serial wound re-exams, but don't have to be admitted. If they have loxosalism and like persistent or worsening signs or symptoms or concern for hemolysis, they need to be admitted. Because again, there's not an antivenom for this spider, it's literally just going to be like any supportive measure you can throw at them if it gets to be really bad. All right, let's talk about the least scary sounding, but the most scary looking spider, the tarantula. Right. So diagnostics for the tarantula, there's really not much. You're basically just going to want to use the slit lamp to look for what's called 
ophthalmia nodosa, which is granulomatous nodular reaction to insect hairs in the eye. But overall, like the treatment for these, it's basically going to be removing the hairs with tape. Because I think, like you said, like it has these hooks and stuff. So you have to like have something that will lift it enough. So I think that's why you use it with tape. Supportive measures, pain management, antihistamines, topical or systemic steroids, local wound care, making sure their tetanus is up to date and getting your eye doc friends on board if they are complaining of any eye symptoms whatsoever. And most of the time they can be discharged after supportive measures. Summary. Quick summary, kind of like the important points that might be helpful for like board exams for black widows. They're the ones with the black bodies with the red hourglass mark on the ventral surface. Their mechanism is a neurotoxin, specifically alpha latrotoxin, causes a pinprick sensation with local skin changes that can progress to muscle spasms and pain. The life-threatening things that we have to worry about as ED docs would be severe hypertension, cardiomyopathies, seizure, gangrene. The treatment is mainly to make sure their tetanus is up to date, supportive management for their muscle pains, which usually will recover in 24 to 48 hours. However, if it's severe, there is an antivenom available, but really going to have to weigh the pros and cons of this because there's a high rate of serum sickness and anaphylaxis as this antivenom is made from force IgG. For brown recluse, found mainly in the South Central and Midwest United States, the mechanism is that it's cytotoxic, causes necrosis and hemolysis with a rare systemic reaction called luxosalism, including fever chills, coagulopathy, rhabdorenal failure, and potentially death. There is a not recluse mnemonic, should you wish to use that. And the treatment is mainly supported, making sure the tetanus is up to date, considering surgical interventions first severe wounds and these patients can either kind of like go home or will have to definitely be admitted for monitoring. And lastly, our little friend, the tarantula found throughout the United States often uses pets. The mechanism is it's a mix of hyaluronidase, nucleotides, polyamines, and also taking note of their hair. The bites are similar to bee stings and the hairs can cause local histamine reactions. The treatment is to remove the hair with tape, local wound care and supportive management, updating their tetanus, making sure the ophthalmology team comes and assesses them for any reaction to insect hairs in the eyes. Thank you so much. Now I'm terrified more, more than I was before. Yeah, I, know. I don't know if this is like helpful for me or it makes me more scared since I already don't like them very much, but. I think it's helpful in the terms of now I know what to do and I know what to look for, but now it's like, okay, well, I'm still, I'm still terrified. Mostly because there's it's a lot of like supportive care, and I'm not going to use the antivenom now, knowing that it's like has such a high rate of like uh, anaphylaxis. But that's good. That's good. All right, now it's time to go on to our next topic. This one is a little less lighthearted and a little bit more heavy. I was asked by one of the current PGY2s, who was a PGY1, when they asked the question about how to pronounce death and kind of some of the intricacies that surround that. So I asked one of my favorite senior residents, Jordan Feltes, to kind of guide me through that process and what that kind of looks like. Here's Jordan on death. Dr. Jordan Feltes. Something that was and still is daunting is pronouncing death. If you wouldn't mind going over how it should be done in a formal slash standardized way, that also covers everything you need to write a death note. That'd be super helpful. Happy Halloween. Today, the topic is death. Uh, So as requested by some of our earlier residents, one of the topics that I think they were feeling a little bit uncomfortable with, especially during our several ICU rotations, is the pronouncement of death. And what are the steps that are involved with that? 
and how do you declare both cardiopulmonary and brain death? And so hopefully we can go over that pretty concisely here today. And a lot of this actually is very political. I guess as you can expect by all of the court cases related to maintenance of artificial life support and some of the public cases that have come through the last, I mean, in our lifetime in the last 30 years, but even more so ever since the mid 20th century. And a lot of this started to come into the limelight initially at the advent of some newer or more sophisticated artificial life support mechanisms. Because before you have an adequate ventilator and vasopressors and other things that can prolong life, it's more challenging to keep people's heart beating and keep people with a pulse and keep people oxygenating and ventilating when their body otherwise would not let them do that. And so I think it was less of a interesting or less of a pertinent topic before then. But once in the mid 20th century, we started having more artificial life support techniques. We came under the question of what is death and how do we define death both clinically as well as legally in the U.S. And I like this quote from early on from Stanford Palliative Care that says, death is usually an easy diagnosis. If death is uncertain, lack of pulse, breath sounds, and heartbeat will usually suffice. And in terms of cardiopulmonary death, that is fairly accurate. And I think it's pretty straightforward. And so let's break that down first. And let's go through cardiopulmonary death. And that'll take 30 seconds. And then we can move on to the more tricky topic, which is brain death. Can I give a anecdote? I was on my IC rotation not too long ago. And I had a guy, he was an elderly gentleman who had just gotten into a car accident. He was going to die. It was very obvious. You know, he had like all of his DNR paperwork and everything already done. So he passed away very peacefully. But the thing that kind of struck me is that I pronounced the death and, you know, he's like clearly dead. It's, like, mm-hmm. it's a zero on a pulse on the monitor. There's nothing. He doesn't have a blood pressure. He's not breathing, et cetera, from where I was standing, holding his hand and, you know, kind of consoling the partner. I walked out of the room and the nurse was like, you have to go back and actually do like an exam. Like you have to go listen to breath sounds and do all this so now I actually, I also have a question. Do I have to do all that stuff? Like, what is, what does this look like? Cause having a person like peacefully pass away and then all of a sudden having to go back and be like, I got to listen to breath sound. Sorry. And like putting the uh, stethoscope on them and like doing all this feels like kind of, kind of futile and disrespectful almost. But Sure. And there's a lot of circumstances in which you know that the person is dead and there is no question about it. Right. You have your GSW that was through the heart and poured out blood and this traumatic arrest and there's no way that that person's going to survive. Sure. However, it is important to have a standardized protocol in which you evaluate for signs of life so that you can properly document that in the chart. And there can be no uncertainty in terms of what you evaluated. This differs definitely state to state a little bit, but the general announcement procedure especially cardiopulmonary death and brain death is a different topic that we will touch on right after this cardiopulmonary death. There's a couple of things that you need to do. One, listen for a heartbeat and check peripheral pulses. This can be done both at the same time, right? You have your stethoscope over the heart. You're listening for a heartbeat. You're feeling for peripheral pulses. You don't feel any of those things, right? Chances are you wouldn't be declaring death until that, until you were certain that there wasn't a pulse anyway, right? Sure. 
Second thing, you're listening for spontaneous respirations. If there's no pulse, most likely there shouldn't be spontaneous respirations. But again, check it, document it. What about agonal respirations? There could be some agonal respirations. There can be some every now and then, you know, you have a, a singular heartbeat that is at a rate of like 10 a minute that is not compatible with life. And, and at those points, sometimes you give it five or 10 minutes, come back into the room. Sometimes people are riding off of like milligrams of Epi mm-hmm. when you're doing CPR. And so maybe every now and then their heart will beat enough to actually conduct a pulse very infrequently. That being said, you can step out of the room, give it a couple of minutes and come back and make sure that when you're doing that exam, that it's accurate. The other weird thing that I have seen, and this is kind of a tangent, is when patients have pacemakers, that the pacemaker will still go. And so you can see electrical activity on the monitor and you can see cardiac electrical activity, even though the patient is dead and not conducting a pulse and the heart really isn't doing anything other than conducting a little bit of electricity. So at that point, the patient isn't having no actual cardiac output. The patient is still dead. What I would do in those cases, especially when the family's around or, you know, nurses that may be more concerned or around is just turn off the monitor and use your clinical exam. That being said, listen for a heartbeat, check peripheral pulses, listen for respirations, and then make sure patients have fixed and non-reactive pupils and no response to verbal or tactile stimuli. And those kind of things go together. If you're not having a pulse and you don't have spontaneous respirations, you're not going to have any real response to stimuli. But if you do those four slash five things and document those well, that's what I think goes together and what most people would agree consists of a proper cardiopulmonary death exam. It doesn't take that long. It takes, you know, 30 seconds to go through all of those things. Do you have to uh, pronounce the time of death out loud? You have to document a time of death because that thing goes in the death packet and that's part of the patient's chart. But you don't have to like stand, you know, firm in the room and say time of death was whatever out loud to the room when you're there. No, I still do that though, because it indicates for family who are there, it indicates that the patient is actually dead and they have a confirmation of it in very clear English. Yeah. And second, the nurses want to hear the time of death because they need to document that as well. Sure. And oftentimes the nurses are the ones doing part or the whole of some of the death documentation, or at least talking to the medical examiner, et cetera. uh, And they're going to need a time of death. Yeah, I don't think there's much controversy in cardiopulmonary death at all. Now, the bigger topic is brain death. And we all know from having been medical professionals for a while that brain death is death. But that also is very much, as much as it feels medical, it is very much a heterogeneous and unfortunately a legal concept here in the U.S. What is the history behind that? Again, about the mid 20th century, when there was more life support and life sustaining measures that were possible, people had to start defining what patients are reasonable to support on life support and what patients are never going to have any kind of meaningful recovery or what patients basically are just being supported with supporting their cardiac output through vasopressors or whatever other sustaining medications and then supporting their respiratory drive with some kind of invasive ventilation, where if those things were not present, the patient would not survive, but also that the patient doesn't actually have any function within their brain in order to at any point help them survive. And that was a more of a tricky conversation, and it's come in steps. So one of the first steps was in 1968, when the ad hoc committee at Harvard wanted to define 
what it means to have brain death. And so they put out their first definition of brain death, which was really focused on the traumatic brain injury population. And, you know, this was before the time of advanced imaging. They defined traumatic brain death as any kind of significant brain injury that caused one, irreversible coma is what they called it. And then two, the inability to breathe spontaneously at all. And so the combination of those two things, before there was any more nuance with advanced imaging or nuance with uh, some of the other non-traumatic forms of brain death, was really what the standard was at that point. Until 1980, there was a committee that put together the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which was really like a set of guidelines that further characterized what brain death was. And it was proposed to then be adopted by individual U.S. states to hopefully be folded into their individual state laws to then adopt what a standard was for brain death from a legal perspective. And from their perspective, it really was twofold. One, irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions was one of their classifications of death. That was their cardiopulmonary death. But two, their brain death was irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. So that leaves a little bit open to interpretation in terms of what medical standards and what the gold standard in medicine definition is for what loss of all brain function is. But that was how they defined it. And since then, Pretty much all states have adopted brain death criteria, most of which, like at least 40 of the states, just word for word adopted the Uniform Determination of Death Act statement in terms of what their legal definition of brain death was. There are a couple of states that have a little different nuances. For example, in Virginia near us, they have a specific stipulation that only a neurologist, neurosurgeon or critical care professional can perform a brain death evaluation or can sign off on brain death. You know, most of the people who are making the brain death determinations are they're almost always patients in the ICU. And so it'll almost always be crit care physicians that do that. Maybe it's a little bit of a different situation in some hospice situations and some palliative care inpatient facilities, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, at least in the hospital setting, we will see someone in crit care or even getting a neurologist to sign off on the patient is experiencing brain death. But that being said, that stipulation is not in effect or is not law in most of the other states. Now that we've discussed a little bit of what is the generalization of what brain death is, let's talk about how we actually perform a brain death exam, when we perform a brain death exam, and what we're looking for in the results to confirm that the patient does not have any significant brain or brainstem function. So there are a couple of prerequisites in order to be able to perform your brain death testing. First, the patient has to have no spontaneous respirations. The patient needs to be off of any kind of CNS depressant drugs or paralytics. So you can't have someone on a propofol or dexmedetomidine drip or anything like that, or be getting a lot of, you know, versed pushes or even a bunch of fentanyl or anything else that can be CNS depressant. You need to remove all of those things first. And you will see circumstances in which patients had like baclofen overdose or some other CNS depressing medications and had what seemed like no brain stem function and no other higher cortical function and eventually metabolized it and then were able to wake up and return to a relatively normal mental status. So making sure all of those things are out of the patient's system is important. The next is 
absence of any severe acid base abnormalities or electrolyte abnormalities that may confound your exam, as well as normothermia. So what we're trying to make sure is that the patient's sodium isn't 190 and their temperature is 30 Celsius. And once you warm the patient up and get them back to a relatively normal electrolyte balance, that they're not going to actually have some kind of brainstem or brain function. So those are all of the things that may confound the brain death testing if you were to perform it in the wrong patient. Then the brain death exam really consists of two parts, one of which is the neurologic exam. That's your physical exam. And the second is apnea testing to prove that the patient is actually apneic. At the end of the day, what you're trying to prove is that the patient did not breathe, even if they had a physiologic drive that would otherwise tell them to breathe. So those are the two things, the neurologic exam and your apnea testing. And then there is some room for neuroimaging or other ancillary testings, EEGs, et cetera, if there are indeterminate tests or there's something else that is wrong. So let's start with the brain death physical exam. It comes in several parts. I'm going to boil it down into five real key points. So you're looking for higher cortical function. You're also looking for brainstem function. Some of the brainstem function that you might see, aka some of your cranial nerve function, are non-reactive pupils, absent corneal reflex, absent gag and cough reflex. And then you're going to have a, an absent oculocephalic and oculovestibular reflex. If you're listening, just Google oculocephalic and oculovestibular reflex and you can you know, look on how to do that. And then the last thing is that kind of the baseline that patient doesn't have any movement in response to noxious stimuli. So whether that's a some kind of deep sternal rub or nail bed pressure or something else that would otherwise prompt some kind of physical movement that they don't have any kind of noxious stimuli movement. And so when you get all five of those things that are absent, then you can say that your physical exam is consistent with brain death. And that checks off the first box. And then you go to the second box, which is apnea testing. So again, you have to assure that the patient is hemodynamically stable. You have to assure that the patient doesn't have wild electrolyte abnormalities. And you also want to make sure that their PCO2 is normal. So between 35 and 45-ish. What you're doing here is basically you're pre-oxygenating them. You're making sure that they don't get hypoxic within the eight to 10 minutes that you're testing this. And you're removing them from the ventilator and just providing them with some supplemental oxygen without any positive pressure, without any ventilations. And you're seeing when their CO2 creeps up because they're not ventilating and they're not breathing on their own, usually you have a natural brainstem instinct, a drive, a respiratory drive that says, you know, my CO2 has gone from 40 to 60. I need to breathe in order to drive that down. And if the patients are not doing that, then that is consistent with apnea. So what you're going to do after you pre-oxygenate them and you make sure that their CO2 on a arterial blood gas initially is normal, then you're going to unhook them from the ventilator. You're going to provide them some supplemental O2, usually like six liters. And then what you're going to do is you're going to, one, sit there for eight to 10 minutes, evaluate your spontaneous respirations. And then two, after that period is finished, you're going to redraw an ABG. You'll put them off on the ventilator in the meantime, while you wait for that ABG to come back from the lab. And when it comes back from the lab, if their PCO2 has gone up by at least 20, and they have had no spontaneous respirations during that about 10 minute period, then you can say that the patient has an apnea test that is consistent with brain death, that the patient doesn't have that spontaneous drive to breathe, right? What you're trying to do is you're trying to avoid the fact that if you like 
blow off their CO2 and it's like 15 and then you sit there and they're not breathing for 10 minutes. Well, maybe their CO2 only went up to 45 in that period of time and they didn't actually have spontaneous drive to breathe. Uh, and then you're confounding your situation. So you want them to be totally normal. Like you and I are sitting at a PCO2 of hopefully around 40 right now. And then no, not me. I maybe, maybe, right maybe with your COPD, it's closer yeah. to 60, but you get them to a normal PCO2 and then you, you and I would absolutely have the drive to breathe within 10 minutes of not giving us support as should patients without brain death. And if they're not doing that, then their apnea meets criteria for brain death. If you've got a consistent neurologic exam and you have a consistent apnea test, then you can make that brain death determination. And that's pretty straightforward. Now, if you have some kind of indeterminate test on either one of those, then there may be, or you're not able to perform one of those tests for one reason or another, then there may be role for some kind of ancillary testing. And usually that comes in the form of either your EEG or your, uh, your 99 technetium spect imaging, whatever that is, your nuclear studies, more or less, uh, that look for metabolic activity in the brain or electrical activity in the brain in the form of the EEG. Those may play a role. That's a little bit beyond the discussion today. Uh, but if you have indeterminate brain death testing, then you may need to move on to one of those additional testing. And that usually has a particular hospital protocol associated with it because it tends to be such a litigious topic historically. Summary. So cardiopulmonary death. So pupils, there shouldn't be any pupillary reflex. They should be fixed. They should be dilated. They're not going to have any verbal response or any, really any response at all to any verbal or tactile stimulation. Um, no spontaneous respirations. And then no heartbeat or heart sounds, no peripheral pulses. Once you've determined all of that, and we kind of covered some of the nuances too, like when people have pacemakers or agonal respirations, once you've determined all of that, if you want to, you know, do this by the book, you can say like time of death was blank, whatever you say, what time of what time it is in terms of the death note. Most of the time your senior residents will have like a standardized note or dot phrase that you can swipe from them. And it's just a bunch of chat boxes, basically. One of those being like, did you do the exam? Were all these things present? And you're going to say no. You're going to put in the time of death. The last couple of things to mention is, was the medical examiner notified? Usually he's taken care of by the fellow, the attending. Usually not your problem as a resident, but you want to note whether they were or were not. The family may ask for an autopsy. They may not ask for an autopsy. It's going to be up to you to figure out when the appropriate time is to ask that question. Sometimes you can get lucky and the nurse has already asked that question beforehand. So ask other people first before you go in there. Be tactful about it. Um, and then we do not have to approach families about organ donation. That is all through WRTC. So for anyone listening, that's just the name of it actually isn't the name of our donation or whatever our donation regional donation services anymore it has a different name now over the last like three or four months but the point is what he's talking about is our regional donor services and so there is definitely what seems initially like a complicated procedure for if your patient is going to undergo brain death testing uh, or the patient is inevitably going to die and you have some kind of anticipation of it that is not really a and should not be a physician managed decision or discussion with the patients because historically there has been some issues with the layperson and the general population being concerned that physicians are trying to kill their patients in order to support organ donation. Obviously, that is not the case. However, because of those concerns by the general population, 
we should be staying out of those discussions and deferring them to our regional donation center representatives who you should know who that is at your local hospital. And then the last part of that note is, was the attending notified? And you should notify the attending if they weren't notified that their patient has died. That'd be kind of silly if you really came in the next day. All right, it's time to round on. Oh, never mind. So that's basically it. Do the exam, tell the nurse what the time of death was, and then do your death note. That's it for cardiopulmonary death. Brain death is a little bit more nuanced than that. That is one I feel like we don't do as often. So this is a good recap of all that. And it sounds like you have kind of three, really two parts of that whole exam. One is doing your neuro exam, which we covered. Two is doing your apnea test, which is a little bit more involved than just not letting them breathe for a while. And the last part is if any of those two were uh, nebulous or not concrete in your answer, then you have some ancillary tests that you can do to prove or disprove brain death. Yeah. You got it. That's all I got. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Now for something a little less heavy, we're going to go back to cat marking and talk about what witches put in their potions, which I'm assuming is just mushrooms and nothing else. Dr. Catherine Markin. To contrast spiders, I actually, I love mushrooms. Back on with our local talks resident at, and uh, let's talk about mushrooms. So thanks for having me back. So today we're going to talk a little bit about two main mushroom types. This is like very interesting for me to research about. The first being jack-o'-lantern mushrooms, very fitting for the fact that it is Halloween season and fall. We're going to talk a little bit about the background where we can find it. Like, is it harmful to humans? Is it not? What's the mechanism? And then if we need to treat any patients that come in with this. Then we're also going to talk about the death cap, a particular mushroom called the Amanita phylloides mushroom. Um, that was totally need- fine, right? Like, that's, that's, you're, you're good. Definitely. Don't even need to right. worry about it. Don't need to go to the hospital for any reason. Yeah. It's, just a, it's just a misnomer, the death exactly. part of it. Exactly. Yeah. This is sarcasm. So yeah, we'll talk about those two. We'll get a little bit into like some fun facts about them and what makes them interesting, particularly in this Halloween season. Background on geography. So the jack-o'-lantern mushroom, it's called, it's basically the Omphaloides species. Um, in North America, there are two separate species, Omphaloides eludens on the East Coast, so where we are, and there's Omphaloides oliviacens, I believe is how you say it, on the West Coast. They tend to grow in clusters on wood. They are very bright orange and they have gills, which I had to kind of like look up what that means. It's basically the underside of the mushroom, those like kind of lines that you see that go underneath. So they have the gills that run all the way down to the stem. The cap can be two to eight inches in diameter and the stalk can be like two to eight inches long. A really cool fun fact about them is that they tend to glow in the dark at night. It's mainly concentrated in the gills, like the underside of the mushroom. However, it seems like pretty variable. Some people have like really good luck apparently and can see them at like glow in the dark at night and say that they are really, really bright. They're basically like a flashlight. And then some people say they've never seen it. Wait, does it glow orange though? Or does it glow like green? I think the picture, so the pictures that I saw were mainly like greenish yellow. Oh, well, that's no fun. Yeah. The other mushroom, the death cap, Amanita phylloides, considered to be one, if not the most, dangerous mushroom to humans. It is found in North America. There are two distinct ranges of the Amanita species along the West Coast, so California to British Columbia, and then also along the East Coast, Maryland to Maine. 
There was a case of note in 2011 where a woman picked an amanitis species in Virginia and was hospitalized at Georgetown. So (laughs) they are in this area. Good to take note of. And that's something that I think is important when we talk about these mushrooms today is that, especially with the death cat mushroom, is that some patients will definitely feel sick enough to come to the emergency department and then will come with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, which like we see kind of all the time. Like it's not like a real huge red flag for us all the time. But then so we might send them home and they might come back like in one to two days with like very, very serious symptoms. So this really hits home the importance of us taking a thorough history, perhaps not asking every person, like, have you been foraging for mushrooms in the past like several hours or so? But like important to know, you know, just taking a thorough history can really be like, like, very important in these patients care. So we just start asking all my abdominal pain people now, like, hey, any mushrooms recently? Yeah. Or I try to catch it all with like, yeah. Or any spider. Well, actually, yeah. Um, I think I I usually end up asking like any, any recent like ingestions of anything weird. And I leave them, I leave that interpretation up to them. Yeah. Uh, You never know. They might be a mushroom forager and they might just always eat mushrooms. Epidemiology. Basically, I was looking kind of like in the research and there's some data from the American Association of Poison Control Centers, the AAPCC. And then the Mushroom Poisoning Registry of the North American Mycological Association. That's quite a mouthful. They indicate that approximately five patient exposures to toxic mushrooms are called to the poison control centers or reported to the registry per 100,000 persons per year. So this is like a relatively uncommon call that they're receiving for these patients. There are more than 100,000 mushroom species that are known to exist. Less than 0.1% of these are known to be toxic, but then again, there are so many species of mushrooms and there are a lot of species that have just not been studied that well. What really it comes down to is the inability of most healthcare providers to correctly identify a mushroom that patient have ingested and the rarity of lethal outcomes are also demonstrated in this data. So there are approximately 75 to 95% of exposures, the exact species of mushroom was not known. More than 50% of exposed individuals had no symptoms. Most patients are treated successfully at home and rarely have any major toxicity. Um, They reviewed like 35 years of data and then fewer than 100 patients died of their mushroom ingestion. Of the mushrooms that were associated with death, most were the Amanita species, which we are going to talk about today. Something of note is that most mushrooms will be growing from spring through fall, which kind of makes sense. It's like usually the growing season for like any typical plant. So kind of like fits in that. A little about the jack-o'-lantern in North America. It's a common fall mushroom east of the Rocky Mountains. It sprouts from and around dead trees and stumps. And it's often confused with edible chanterelles, which I actually looked up the picture of them. They do look very similar and it's a very common type of mushroom to eat. So it's like, that kind of sucks that they look so similar. And one is like not very pleasant side effects. And one is actually supposedly very delicious. And then the death cat mushrooms, like I said, it's estimated responsible for like 90% of mushroom fatalities around the world. And it's kind of scary that it's found in both urban and rural settings from what I can see. So like it can literally be in like somebody's backyard in DC, potentially. No bueno. Pathophysiology. So jack-o'-lantern mushrooms, the mechanism of action, it's a, has a muscarine toxin, which is actually found in multiple different species of mushrooms and in varying quantities. The way that it works is that it binds a muscarinic acetylcholine receptor of the parasympathetic autonomic system, while the nicotinic receptors remain, remain unaffected. 
It's a quaternary amine, so it does not pass the blood-brain barrier. So there's no CNS toxicity. And then something to note is that it, the toxin itself is resistant to degradation by acetylcholine esterase, and it is not destroyed by cooking, which like kind of plays a role in the fact that it's mistaken for this other mushroom that people typically eat to so like cook with it. The fact they're cooking it doesn't change the fact that it's like still going to cause symptoms. So the death cat mushroom, the mechanism of action, I think, is very interesting for this. So it has 15 to 20 cyclopeptides. The amatoxin, phallotoxins, and virotoxins are the ones that are best studied. So of these three, phalloidin, which is a principal phallotoxin, appears to be the most rapid acting, and the amantin tends to be causing the more delayed manifestations of its toxicity. Phalloidin, the way it works, is that it crosses the plasma membranes of hepatocytes, it interrupts actin polymerization, and impairs cell membrane function. There's limited oral absorption, so it has very minimal systemic toxicity, but it causes the initial GI dysfunction noted after somebody's had amanita ingestion. Amatoxins are the most toxic of the cyclopeptides. They cause liver, kidney, and CNS damage. Alpha-mantin is the principal amatoxin that's responsible for the human toxicity. So a little bit of like numbers that kind of helps put it in perspective. About 1.5 to 2.5 milligrams of amantin can be obtained from one gram of dry amanita phalloides. A 20 gram mushroom contains well in excess of the 0.1 milligram per kg amantin considered lethal for humans. So like for a 70 kilogram person, seven milligrams would be considered the lethal dose. That's like not very much. It's like hardly anything, actually. So you really don't even have to have that much for it to be lethal. And then like even less than that for it to cause serious side effects or if like you don't get medical care, it could still be lethal. Amatoxins are highly bioavailable. They are heat stable and are rapidly absorbed in the GI tract. The hepatocellular entry of alpha-amantin is facilitated by sodium-dependent bile acid transporters. Once it gets inside the cells, the cytotoxicity of amantin results from its interference with RNA polymerase 2, throwback to biochem, preventing transcription of DNA. Therefore, kind of like big picture, is that it suppresses protein synthesis and causes cell death. Something that's also kind of note for it is that alpha amantin is enterohepatically recirculated. Oh, so the target no, I organs hate when things are... I hate when things are recirculated. Because yeah, <laughs> it just keeps coming again and again and again. Exactly, exactly, Armand. So basically the target organs are one of the ones that have the highest rate of cell turnover. So you know, that includes like the GI tract, the skin, um, the liver cells, and the kidneys. But something I've noticed is that it doesn't seem to cross the placenta. So like there was an episode where there was toxicity in a pregnant woman and then there was no fetal toxicity noted so i guess it's like the one upside maybe that's one good thing okay (laughs) the singular good thing about this and then the third component of the cyclopeptide the virotoxin like i mentioned earlier there's no evidence of toxicity in humans too bad they all they it comes as a family of three yeah but really interesting mechanism i think and then the fact that you like hardly need anything is really terrifying I can't wait for you to show up at someone's bedside and be like, you did mushrooms? Please yeah. tell me about all the things. And they're like, I'm dying right now. Could you please just treat me? I'm like, no, um, but I have to know what yeah. mushroom did you have? Right. <laughs> Presentation. So how are people presenting with the jack-o'-lantern mushroom? All right. So the jack-o'-lantern mushroom. So the symptoms usually occur relatively quickly after ingestions, so 15 to 120 minutes, and they can continue for hours up to a day. 
I think we're all like pretty familiar with the sludge mnemonic in terms of muscarinic signs. So some of these might include diarrhea, diaphoresis, urination, meiosis, bronchorrhea, bradycardia, bronchoconstriction, emesis, lacrimation, and salivation. From what I could gather, the main symptoms that people had were kind of restricted to like the GI area. So it was nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramping, diarrhea, and people had some weakness and dizziness, usually associated with just like the amount of vomiting they were having and like the profuse diarrhea. And then just to hit home, it is not fatal. So going into the signs and symptoms of the death cat mushroom. So there are three main phases to a patient that will present after ingestion. The first one is phase one. It resembles severe gastroenteritis. They'll have profuse watery diarrhea that usually comes on like five to 24 hours ingestion. So slightly different than like what I said before about the Jacqueline mushroom will come almost immediately after. Early onset of GI distress before five hours is a really strong support for another non-aminated species or some other like potentially not a mushroom ingestion. So something I've noticed at five to 24 hours after you have the death cap, that's when your symptoms are occurring. Phase two you have this transient improvement, very deceptive, that occurs from 12 to 36 hours after ingestion. And it's kind of like very unfortunate because they will start to look better, but that's when the hepatic injury starts to happen. So we might like send them home in the phase two space, right? They're starting to look better. They like just are subjectively saying that they're starting to feel better. And that's when we, like, we could potentially be sending them home when it's like the most dangerous point for them is like that's when their hepatic injury is starting to occur. This, this is like a, a lucid interval. Mm-hmm. Oof, okay. Yeah. The timing is very important for this mushroom, which is like really tough because it's like, if it happens, right? If somebody comes in and they were like, oh, I had something 24 hours ago and I started having symptoms like a couple hours ago, we're not necessarily going to like immediately think, oh, that's the direct cause, right? So it's like, we might just kind of like, just not have it super high on our differential, I think. And then when they come in and start to feel better and I'm like, oh, we fixed you. Yeah, like, you can go home. Right, bye. Yeah. The IV fluids that we gave you and the Zofran and whatever fixed you. And then you can go home. And like that's when this is like really starting to brew and starting to like boil over. So the boiling over is phase three. That means like despite any supportive care in phase three, um, this is when the hepatic and renal toxicity and death occur. So this can happen like two to six days after the initial ingestion. This is when you'll see like rises in bilirubin, ASC, ALT, you'll see hypoglycemia, jaundice. Um, but again, these don't happen until several days after the initial ingestion. And then something of note, pancreatic toxicity rarely occurs. So that's maybe well, that's one good. thing. Yeah, maybe okay. they won't have pancreatitis. That's good. Yay! So those are the three main components for death cap. Management. How are we going to take care of this cat? So for management of the Jacqueline mushroom ingestions, there are no diagnostic assays. The treatment is mainly supportive based on like how the patient presents in front of you. You can usually just give like IV fluids to replace any losses. So like I said before, the toxin is a muscarine. So it mimics muscarinic kind of like toxic potential. And so you might need atropine if you need to like help with their severe secretions. But like I said before, the symptoms that we're usually presenting with this mushroom are like pretty limited to the GI tract. There doesn't seem to be like this bradycardia element or like severe secretion. So don't think you'll have to end up using that. Um, and the disposition for these patients, excellent prognosis. You can usually discharge them unless there's other like concerning signs from potentially some other co-ingestion or some other like differential that you're trying to work up. And then the death cap. 
in terms of diagnostics for the death cap, there is no specific diagnostic assay, which is like very sad for this, I think. I'm going to want to go broad with your labs, CBC, BMP, LFTs for sure, COAG, CPK, EKG, um, potentially like sepsis labs. The treatment for this, it's like, it's pretty tough because there's not a really great one. You can start out with activated charcoal in the first 12 to 24 hours after the mushroom ingestion, that'd be one gram per kg of body weight of activated charcoal. For the GI symptoms, you can do IV fluids. You might want to give some sugar and electrolyte repletion. In terms of like protecting the liver at all costs, there's N-acetylcysteine or NAC, which you might, like some of the listeners might know, you can kind of use it for like Tylenol as well. It's known to be hepatoprotective. There's this kind of like loading and bolusing regimen that you can do is basically loading 150 mgs per kg for 60 minutes, then 50 mgs per kg over four hours, then 100 mgs per kg infused over 16 hours. Yeah, this is the same thing we do for Tylenol toxicity. So there's like an order set that we have, I know, that will automatically put this in for you. Mm. And then poison control is usually following very closely with these people. So they'll call nurses and be like, hey, uh, it's time to do this or um, which... A huge plug for poison control. If if you are thinking any toxicology, anything, please call poison control. They are so nice. Back on topic. Silly Marin. Yes. Silly Marin, I think is how you pronounce it. It's basically a milk thistle extract. Um, it's another kind of hepatoprotective mechanism. It is not FDA approved, but you can possibly acquire it through researchers or your regional poison control. The dosing for this would be 20 to 50 mg per kg per day IV. Kind of like last end resort for these patients, unfortunately, is a liver transplant. Um, there is no definitive transplant criteria for amatoxin-associated acute liver injury or liver failure. A lot of times it comes down to like the surgeon's judgment at a transplant center, whether or not they'd be a good candidate for the surgery. So I'm sure there's like a lot of other kind of factors that are going into it, like what their baseline health status is and like all these other things, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of like precise criteria that they're looking at for these patients. I hope they make them sign a form though that says like, I'm never going to eat another mushroom again in my never life. Never again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to go foraging. I'm not going to. Yeah. Like not even at a restaurant or like at the grocery <laughs> store. Like I'm not yeah. even going to go into the produce section anymore. <laughs> no vegetables, period. <laughs> yeah. Right. Where, where's, where are these people going? I mean, it's pretty, pretty obvious where they're going. <laughs> okay. So just like, if you have a patient that comes in and then they, it's highly suggestive that they've had amniotic exposure and they're like looking like they're making a turn for the worst. It's definitely going to be important to have a good discussion with these patients and need to be told about the severity of their toxic exposure. Like this is a big deal, but they need to be talked about the advantage of a care center for those with liver failure and the potential need for a transplant. The safest kind of dispo for these patients is rapid transfer to a regional liver transplant center. Those are the ones that can provide like the highest quality care for decision-making in regard to timing of liver transplants in the face of potentially needing one. I mean, if somebody comes in and they look very well and they were like, this is the mushroom that I ate and you're like pretty convinced that it's a death cap. I don't think I would send this person home if they, especially like if they're like, I feel well. And I'd be like, yeah, but you might be in that like lucid interval. Right. Where you're like looking a little bit better. And then like a, like a day later, you're going to be taking a turn for the worst. Exactly. Or a couple yeah, days yeah, later. Yeah. So I would admit exactly. this person, at least for OBS. Yeah, for sure. Just like trending some LFTs might be a good idea. Yeah. Summary. All right. So big picture for these two mushrooms, the jack-o'-lantern found in North America, easily mistaken for the edible chanterelles. Mechanism of action is a muscarine toxin 
The symptoms can occur like 15 to 20, 15 to 120 minutes after ingestion. So relatively quickly, they include mainly GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain that can continue for hours up to a day. However, the prognosis is very good. These patients usually resolve with symptomatic management and you can like think of atropine um, if they have like severe secretions or bradycardia, but very unlikely that you'll have to use it. And then for the death cap found along both coasts in North America and in the DMB, the main toxic components are the amatoxins and the phallotoxins. The timing is very important for this mushroom. So there are three phases of clinical presentation. Phase one being severe gastroenteritis. They have the profuse watery diarrhea that doesn't come out until five to 24 hours after the ingestion. Phase two, the transient improvement, usually from like 12 to 36 hours after ingestion. But something I've noticed that these patients should not go home. This is potentially when hepatic injury starts. Phase three is when there's hepatic toxicity and potentially death that can ensue two to six days after the initial ingestion. The treatment for these patients is supportive IV fluids, electrolyte, amidst electrolyte repletion, activated charcoal if it's in the, in the first 12 to 24 hours, N-acetylcysteine, silymarin, which is the milk thistle extract, and then potentially transferring to a liver transplant center where they will have to be evaluated by their surgeon. Parting wisdom. It's very important to obtain a thorough history and consider consulting your local poison control center. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. Ready? We're going to do an oral boards case or oral board question right now. Oh my God, I'm scared. Ready? Scared. We go through all these cases and everything, right? But here, here's like the real question that something that you shouldn't look up but have to know. Mm. Question number one: What is the phone number for poison control? One eight hundred two 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 one two two two. Exactly. Yeah. Finally, we have probably the most scary topic, a missed anterior STEMI. And to guide us through is once again, Dr. Taylor Blackwell. So we have with us once again, a verified owner of calipers, Dr. Blackwell. I can confirm. So, oh, and if you're wondering who's giggling in the background, that's Caitlin Williams finishing up her charting. I do own my own calipers and I kind of figure that's, that is all the credentialing that I need for this podcast. So that's what, that's what I'm going to go with again. Hello, Dr. Dr. Blackwell. He pulled them out. He actually has, I, them with them. I, I, I was joking, but this is real. I, I, I don't know. I had a pathologic need to physically handle them at this point. So I'm going to put them away now, but I just, I needed to prove it, I guess to all of you who can't see me proving it, but I feel vindicated. So today in support of the Halloween episode and the, the creepy crawly spooky things out there, what is more scary than a missed STEMI on an EKG? I can't think of many things. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now there are many ways to miss a STEMI. This is to scare you many, many ways to miss a STEMI. One is a misdiagnosis of a benign condition, right? And so when I was thinking about the most commonly missed STEMIs, not statistically, I have no data to support this, but anecdotally in my mind, one of the least comfortable that I have been in diagnosing things as normal is benign early repole. Benign early repole is something that just statistically, you are right more than you are wrong because the population that tends to have it is young, healthy men. And that population tends to not have heart attacks. And so if you call everything that looks like ST elevation in the anterior leads that is concave upwards in a young, otherwise healthy male, benign early repull, you will probably be right most of the time, but you will be wrong eventually. And that heart attack is going to go missed. 
And that is not something on this podcast that we want to happen. So we're going to give you tools to try to make sure that never happens, not just infrequently, but never. For this, for those of you following at home who have access to a computer, don't do this if you're driving. I don't want any lawsuits for this podcast because we're, we're trying to look this up as we're driving. But those of you who are stationary and not on shift actively have the time to look up a calculator. MD Calc, highly recommend. Look up subtle anterior STEMI calculator. It's a four variable replacing the previous three variable for which we will not get into the details of. It is a calculator created and validated by Dr. Stephen Smith. And I'm wondering, oh, him. Yeah. yeah, does that ring any bells out there? He is uh, most famous for his modified Scarbosa criteria. Elena Scarbosa was a wonderful cardiologist who initially came up with the Scarbosa criteria for left bundle branch block. Uh, Dr. Stephen Smith was the smart man who decided that the third and largely irrelevant Scarbosa criteria, which if you'll remember, is non-diagnostic on its own, should be modified to a percentage of the the R height instead of just the the raw greater than five millimeters of ST elevation. He has done his magic again with benign early repull and come up with a calculator that helps us uh, EM clinicians decide whether we need to activate the the cath lab uh, on this person who comes in with probably benign early repull. First and foremost, there are exclusion criterias. In in the initial study that he used to validate this, he called these obvious MIs. We rule out all obvious MIs. I'm going to be honest. He's a much smarter man than I am I with EKGs, say, yeah, I but I don't think of any of these as necessarily obvious STEMI. So make sure to check these. It's, it's, it's not just a couple. So I don't memorize this. I don't recommend that you memorize it. If you have a person you're thinking about calling BER, I want you to just hear this podcast in the back of your head, look it up online, make sure they don't fit any of these obvious features and maybe use the calculator. We'll see. The first of this is if that benign early repull elevation of the SC segment is more than five millimeters, they immediately don't fit criteria for this. That is not to say that everything greater than five millimeters of ST elevation is necessarily not BER and is a STEMI. Absolutely not true. There is profound BER that is greater than five millimeters, but it is so far on the extreme of the average of the ST elevation for benign early repo that it is outside the window of using this calculator. So then you're on your own. Good luck, text cardiology. The second thing, the concavity of that ST segment, we want it to be concave upwards, okay? The key here from my memory hook is you want it to be a smiley face. If you put two dots above it on the EKG, smiley face is good. Concave up, good. Benign early repull, not a STEMI. If you got a frowny face, or you've got one of those, uh, what is that emoji those kids are using nowadays? Social media. It can be overwhelming for a young homeowner turning into their parents. The, uh, with the, 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 the backs, backslash, that kind of, sure, man. Yeah. One of those <laughs> where it's, it's straight and flat, not good. Face with diagonal mouth or skeptical smiley. Okay. You want, you need it to be a smiley face. Concave upwards is the key. All right. Reciprocal changes. This is the one big feature here that is an exclusion criteria that I would argue is probably an obvious MI. BER should never come with reciprocal depressions. Nothing should ever come with reciprocal depressions. There's no pseudo ischemia mimic that I know of on an EKG that comes with reciprocal depressions. That is ischemia until proven otherwise at that point. No reciprocal changes allowed. The fourth thing that, that we're looking for is anterior ST depression. If you see what looks like BER in some of the anterior leads, but you have depression in other leads, 
That is not BER. There should be no ST depression anteriorly in BER. Going forward, the, the QRS, there should be a clean takeoff for this criteria to be used from the end of the QRS straight into the ST segment. If there is a notching, if there is a little uh, wiggle wham, if there is a little twitch there at the end, that does not mean it's not BER. BER commonly comes with some J-point notching. That is very common. And there are some subtypes that we can talk about, particularly in men of Middle Eastern origin or men of Greek origin that do have that as a subtype and have very, very scary looking EKGs. It is a small minority of BER. But if you do have those notching or distortions of the QRS, the terminal end of the QRS, you cannot use this anymore because it will affect some of the measurements that we're going to talk about, not because it is a sign of a STEMI. So don't be calling immediately based on QRS distortion. Just can't use this. And we'll talk about why later. The sixth one that we need to keep an eye out is Q waves. BER is a normal rhythm in people who are young and healthy and have good muscular hearts and have a repolarization abnormality as a result of that big muscular functional heart. Q waves generally are a sign of myocardial scarring. Often we talk about it as a previous MI, but not necessarily. People who have myocardial invasion of any issues, including amyloidosis, any scarring that affects conduction will have some evidence of Q waves. And so that immediately says, you know what, maybe this isn't the young, healthy, normal, structurally functional, strong heart that I thought that BER would be fitting with. So, so don't use this criteria. Again, doesn't mean it's systemic, but it means we can't use this criteria. And the last one is looking at T-wave inversions. We talked about it earlier on this podcast as a sign of ischemia from, from T-wave inversions kind of anywhere. Here specifically, anterior leads is where we're looking at the BER changes. BER does not cause T-wave inversions. And so if you're seeing concomitant T-wave inversions, V2 through V6, it's not appropriate for this calculator. V1 is a free lead for uh, T-wave inversion, so don't worry about it in V1. Now we've gone through the arduous process of getting through the exclusion criteria, and we're now finally ready to use the uh, calculator here. So it is not an easy, simple, eyes-only criteria here to use, and it is a calculator. You need to put these numbers in. Take the time to do it. We don't see benign early repull that often, and a missed STEMI because of a benign early repull is a big issue that you do not want to have. Take the two minutes to sit down and plug this in when you have a BER criteria that you think is in front of you. But obviously, if you had to do this on every EKG, it would not be feasible. But BER is worth it, I think. And it lets you sleep at night. And that's really that's really the most important thing here. The first thing you need to plug in is your QTC interval. Make sure it's the corrected QTC. And you do not have to measure this as far as I'm concerned. I trust the computer for really only two things. One is to get the patient's name on the chart. And two, to make sure those intervals are correct. I trust the intervals. I sometimes will double check the intervals myself and rarely have I found something that's wildly inaccurate with the intervals. Save yourself a moment. Don't calculate it. QTC corrected straight from the, the interval section of the EKG. Plug that in in milliseconds here. Second thing you need to plug in is your QRS amplitude. You're looking at V2 specifically. Make sure you're measuring in V2. This is not an exchangeable lead. It has to be V2. And you're measuring from the initial upward deflection for the R wave all the way to the top of the R wave. And this is QRS amplitude in millimeters. And so you're measuring those tiny boxes on the way up. 
make sure you plug that into the second part here. The third one is you're looking at V4 and you're looking at your R wave amplitude in V4, making sure you get very similar to the measurement we just talked about, but in V4. And then the fourth and, la and final one is really the crux of this. Benign early repull is characterized by ST segment elevation. And so what you're trying to determine is, is this enough elevation based on the amplitude that we have just measured of V2 and V4 to be scary? Right. And so if you have a bigger amplitude of your R waves and your QRS in V4 and v V2, respectively, it, this calculator is going to allow for a bigger elevation in J point. The beauty of this calculator is it's not just looking at how high is the ST segment because we can do that with our eyeballs. We don't need a calculator for that. It's checking how high is it at a specific point. So it's also calculating how fast that ST segment is rising because a, a gentle concave up upsloping in BER is less concerning than an immediate spike up. And so that measurement point is in V3. You want it to be 60 milliseconds after what you determined to be the initial J point. And that's where that ST segment is measured from. And you're measuring from the J point to 60 milliseconds later, how much higher is that ST segment? 60 milliseconds, as a reminder, each of those small boxes horizontally is 40 milliseconds. So one and a half small boxes over, not very far. I would recommend marking with a pen so you get a good sense. Going from there, you've got all your, your things calculated and you plug it in, you let it do its thing, you let it calculate, it's gonna spit out a number. If your score is greater than or equal to 18.2, now don't measure this, it will tell you right there in big bold white letters, concern for STEMI, low concern for STEMI, but 18.2 is your cutoff then you should, be, you should be getting a trope at the minimum and probably activating the cath lab. I would not activate purely based on the EKG, but I would be getting an iStat troponin and very seriously considering bringing cardiology on board, if not activating based on the point of care troponin. Now, the sensitivity and specificity is not perfect. This is not a headlining thing that your attendings are going to be totally wowed about. They should have already known about this. This is a subtle thing, as noted by the, the subtle anterior STEMI calculator in the name. The sensitivity is about 83%. Specificity is about 87%. So it's not perfect. But when you look at the literature to look at BER, about 30 or 40% of patients with anterior STEMI have a concave upward ST segment, which normally we would be thinking, man, that looks like BER. Scary. It's terrifying. Yeah. So this is a commonly missed thing. And some of these BER changes can be subtle. So I'm going to take for now an 84% sensitivity and an 87% specificity over a 30 to 40% miss rate on my anterior STEMIs. So I would use this calculator kind of going forward for my BERs before I formally call something BER. I'm going to put this calculator and the score into my, uh, into my charts here. All right. I'm thoroughly scared now. Thank you so much for now making what was initially benign early repull less benign. Thank you. So much. Can't wait to have you back, Taylor. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. All right. Till next time. All right. So that was a fun one. Topical for Halloween, you know, when this eventually comes out. All that was lost is 
Uh, I'm going to be entering my clinical hibernation in a couple of days as I start uh, trauma ICU. But you'll hear me again in November as we get really into peak fall with pumpkin spice lattes and honey crisp apple candles from Trader Joe's and uh, of course the giving of thanks that that holiday. So I'll see you then. And until then, happy Halloween. Beckons through the leaves Father. as autumn <gasps> colors.